0: very warm welcome to episode 15 of City Breaks London, Bloomsbury. So yes, in this episode we're going a little upmarket to the posh bit of London, the intellectual bit, the academic bit. Perhaps I better define my terms before we start. So that bit of London south of Kings Cross and the Euston Road, stretching down to perhaps Holborn towards Oxford Street. Think bookshops, libraries, museums, the University of London. Some famous roads would include Gower Street, Great Ormond Street, Russell Square, somewhere to enjoy wandering through elegant Georgian squares, and thinking about all the clever people, all the intellectuals, who made Bloomsbury their home or their place of work, or in many cases both. The name connected perhaps above all with the Bloomsbury group itself, a group of intellectuals and writers about whom Amy Merchant wrote a whole book. I'll be talking more about that later, but just by way of introduction, Here are the opening lines to chapter one. The very name of the Bloomsbury Group evokes a certain place and time. It swells with the essence of Englishness, with bath buns devoured in the ABC tea rooms, walks in Kensington Gardens and windy rides on the tops of omnibuses. We picture nursery teas in stuffy Victorian attics, swathed in lace, libraries of dark leather, windows covered with lace and ivy. So a very definite atmosphere about the whole place. The plan for the episode today, then? Going to have a little wander through some of the squares, name them, tell you a little bit about who worked there and when and what to look out for on your visit, and then follow that with a section on the Bloomsbury Group. Who were they? When were they there? What did they do? And finally, some other ideas of places to visit, places like the British Library, the British Museum, etc. So then, a wander. I think let's start in the south of Bloomsbury because three of the most famous squares are clustered there all around the British Museum, they being Bloomsbury Square, Bedford Square and Russell Square. Okay so Bloomsbury Square which was the first official square in London laid out as early as the 1660s, originally one big house and then shops etc for the convenience of residents on the other three sides. So impressive was it that the diarist John Evelyn called it a small town. By the 18th century, three of the sides were being used for housing for wealthy families, the fourth side being reserved for their servants. That gives you a bit of a flavour right there. Unfortunately, most of the square as it was originally has disappeared, but it's a good place to start your tour because of its name, giving the name to the whole area and indeed the Bloomsbury movement. The actual houses is not there any more, but you may care to know that at one time, number six was occupied by one Benjamin Disraeli. I think He lived there when he was a child, but he of course went on to be one of the 19th century's most famous British Prime Ministers. Gertrude Stein lived there too, in that period of her life when she spent her days reading at the British Library. She stayed here for convenience because her brother had a house in the square. Not far from Bloomsbury Square is Bedford Square, A good one to visit because it's the most complete Georgian square left. It was built in the 1770s on land belonging to the Duke of Bedford, hence the name. And it's stylish because all the houses were given the same proportions, the same elegance, and they were all clustered round the central garden. In the 19th century, in fact, the square was gated, so no traffic could come through and pester anybody. So it really would have been a lovely secluded place to live. In the 1910s, one of the houses was occupied by one lady Ottoline Morell, who ran a literary salon there, attended by people like D.H. Lawrence and Lytton Strachey and T.S. Eliot. Actually, poor T.S. Eliot. She found him, and I quote, dull, 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 and complained that he, quote, never moves his lips, but speaks in a mandarin voice. Actually, that does ring a bell. I think I've heard him reading some of his own poetry. And yes, he was very, very, very posh. By the 1980s, it has become the home of lots of well-known publishers. So Bodley Head, Jonathan Cape, Hodder and Stoughton all had offices there. I think they've all moved out, but I believe that the Bloomsbury publishers, they who publish, among other things, Harry Potter, are still based there. And then the third of our trio, possibly the best known of all, Russell Square, where the Nightingale once sang, if you recall, from the popular song. It too was built on land owned by the Duke of Bedford, with what you need to know there is the family name of the Dukes of Bedford is Russell. So they named this after themselves, too. It's the largest square in Bloomsbury, and it too has a definite literary flavour. So T.S. Eliot worked there, for example, in the days when Number 24 was occupied by the publishers Faber and Faber. I believe he actually worked there from the 1920s right up until the 1960s during which time they published such well-known poets as Auden, Stephen Spender, Ted Hughes, although famously T.S. Eliot himself turned down the idea by one George Orwell for a book called Animal Farm. One of the amusing things I read about this square was the fact that in the 1930s you might see a lady walking up and down outside the publisher's offices wearing a placard on which she had written, I am the wife that T.S. Eliot abandoned. He did, in fact, redeem himself a little bit during World War II because it's known that he used to sleep at the office and frequently did fire watch duty, trying to keep the building safe from bombs and fire. Authors who visited in the 1950s would include Dylan Thomas and Philip Larkin, so we really can say that the literary credentials of this square are top-notch. One building I haven't mentioned along one side of the square is the Russell Hotel. I enjoyed the rough guide description of it as a, no holds barred Victorian terracotta fancy, and it certainly is true to say that it does look as if it's been designed by a committee, and that anyone who had any ideas at all for things that you could decorate the hotel with got their way and it was all stuck up there. One thing you might look out for is statues representing what I saw described as the four Protestant English queens, so Elizabeth I, Mary the Second, Queen Anne, and Queen Victoria. People like poor Mary I, too Catholic I'm afraid, her statue wasn't put up there. One wonders whether they're going to add Queen Elizabeth II. Who knows? Anyway, not too far from Russell Square then is Queen Square, built in the early 1700s and named after the Queen of the day, Queen Anne. This is another square, elegant though it is today, where none of the actual original buildings survive, but if you wander through that you might like to know that William Morris both lived and worked here. He had a design shop on the ground floor of his house, which I believe was number 25, and he worked above it, this being in the 1860s. And at the end of the 19th century, one Jerome K. Jerome, author of, among other things, Three Men in a Boat, lived here too. Not too far away again, two squares with German names, Brunswick Square and Mecklenburg Square. Super ironically, both were badly damaged during World War Two. But the reasons why these two squares have German names dates back much before the 20th century. So Brunswick Square is called after the German city of Braunschweig because the wife of the Prince Regent, George IV, Caroline, was Caroline of Braunschweig before she married. And in the case of Mecklenburg Square, it was named after Queen Charlotte because she, before she married George III, had been Charlotte, Princess of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. Brunswick Square certainly had a whole collection of famous residents. It's one of the squares in which Virginia Woolf lived, for example. The novelist D. M. Forster lived there too. In fact, he lived in two different houses. The first being number 27, which was actually his mother's house. But apparently, after a year or two of living with her, he moved next door, into his own place. Brunswick Square gets a mention in one of Jane Austen's novels. Emma, in fact. Isabella moves in. And is very pleased to be there, saying, in fact, We are so very airy, I should be unwilling to live in any other part of town. Moving on to Mecklenburg Square then, Virginia Woolf lived there too, later in her life, towards the beginning of World War Two, She lived at number 37, and in the basement of that building was installed the publishing company that she ran with her husband, Hogarth Press. It's known too that the novelist D.H. Lawrence stayed here at number 44, with his wife in the period when he was writing Women in Love. A little to the north then of the squares I've mentioned so far, Gordon Square, also a haunt of Virginia Woolf and actually quite an important one because it was here that the first Bloomsbury Group meetings were held. More about that a little bit later. Suffice for the moment to say that it too was bomb-damaged in World War Two and that today it's owned by the University of London. Open to the public... Quite a place for picnics, think, roses and winding paths. Unless, of course, it's one of those summer days when there's a graduation ceremony taking place in a marquee, specially set up for the occasion. Then there's Tavistock Square. That too is linked to the Bedford family. The Duke of Bedford's oldest son is always known as the Marquis of Tavistock. And this too has a whole range of literary connections. Dickens lived in this square, in a house which sadly has been destroyed that he was there for nine or ten years in the 1850s. It's where he wrote some of his best-known novels, Bleak House, Little Dorrit, Hard Times, A Tale of Two Cities. And yes, as I'm sure you're already guessing, it's yet another square in which Virginia Woolf once lived. She was here for longer than at some of the other places, in fact, for about 15 years, from 1924 onwards, and here it was that she wrote her best-known novels, so Mrs Dalloway, To the Lighthouse, and so on. Sadly, the site where her house was has been completely obliterated in the Blitz, and she herself wrote about it, having gone back to see the damage, that, quote, only rubble where I wrote so many books, and open air where we sat so many nights, and gave so many parties. But there is today there a bust of Virginia herself in the middle of the square, erected by the Virginia Woolf Society in 2004, And also in the centre, there's a statue of Mahatma Gandhi, marking the fact that it was here in London, at UCL, in fact, University College London, that he did his law studies. OK, so a little bit of a tour, which you could follow on a map if you felt so inclined. A nice atmospheric wander with lots of literary connotations. So, moving on then to the Bloomsbury Group. Who actually were they and what did they do? Some people date the beginning of the whole thing to 1899, when a certain group of young men went up to Trinity College, Cambridge, and met. And one of them was one Toby Stephen, who was the brother of Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell. After a year or two, they formed a little society known as the Apostles, in which they collected people they thought were interesting. In fact, I found a nice rationale behind the group in a book called Insights, published by the National Portrait Gallery on the Bloomfield Group. So this is what they had to say about the Apostles. Each year, only three new members were added to the Apostles. Certain undergraduates on arriving at Cambridge were, unknown to them, selected as embryos and their conversation and behaviour were watched. If they met with approval, as John Maynard Keynes did, they were invited to become part of this high-minded, self-conscious society which had its own lingo and rituals. It does all sound quite studenty, doesn't it? So secrecy was the thing, and amusingly I read somewhere that one of the members was Guy Burgess, future spy, of course, who thought nothing of betraying his country, but who, even years later, when asked what had gone on in Apostles' meetings, refused to say. He would not, he said, disclose their secrets. What we do know is that they were very keen for their discussions to be fresh, intellectually honest getting rid of moral conventions and social customs, moving things on. Perhaps you are thinking a bit like the youth in every generation, but I think they certainly saw themselves as different and special. By 1904, they had graduated, moved back to London, and as it happened, this was a new start for the four adult children of the Stephen family, so Virginia, Vanessa, and their two brothers. Their mother had died quite some time before, Their father died in that year and they sold all their furniture, moved into a new house together and started to do things their way. So they had every room painted white, they had Indian shawls draped over chairs. So very much out with all the stuffy old Victorian stuff and in with the new. One of them, Vanessa, wrote about how exhilarated she was to, quote, have come to these white walls, large windows opening onto trees and lawns to have one's own rooms, to be master of one's own time. We have to add that what they also had was plenty of money, so there didn't seem to be any need to work, and they could just set about thinking about what they did want to do with their time. So, discussion groups it was. What did they actually talk about? Vanessa wrote, for example, about one of the members, Lytton Strachey, that what she admired was, quote, his great honesty of mind, and poking fun at any sham which forced others to be honest, too, and showed a world in which one need no longer be afraid of saying what one thought. On another occasion, when asked what they'd all talked about, she replied, the only true answer can be, well, anything that came into our heads. In one sense it was all quite free and easy, various members moved in and out of the property, came to stay, disappeared again, etc. But behind all of this there was quite a rigid domestic system, not run by them, of course, Thankfully they had servants, and that allowed them to have all this freedom. So again, from Amy Licence's book, is a little paragraph which explains that. According to the scheme of the house, meals were supplied by Sophie the cook and the housemaid Maud at 9am, 1pm and 8pm, with tea at 4.30, for which the inhabitants would sign up each day by initialling the kitchen instruction tablet. The meals were left on trays in the hall for people to carry up to their rooms, consume and then return at once. So, on the question of who was in the group, the ones best remembered today are probably the two Stephen sisters who went on to become Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell and their husbands, Leonard Woolf and Clive Bell. If you were to draw up a top ten, other people that would be included would be Lytton Strachey, best known certainly at the time for his book, Eminent Victorians, which was a biography unlike any previous biographies, because he didn't just praise everybody. If he didn't think much of what they'd done or didn't agree with their ideas, he wasn't afraid to say so. That sounds quite normal today, but apparently just out of the Victorian era, that was quite a new thing. He wrote lots of other books too. He wrote essays for publications like The Spectator. was very well known at the time. As was Duncan Grant, the artist, seen as bold and experimental, certainly in the early days. Between the wars he became a bit more traditional. One summary sentence on him from the National Portrait Gallery's book Insights would be, quote, He always had an alert, interpretive colour sense and an animated sensuousness. E.M. Forster was on the fringes of the Bloomsbury Group, best remembered today for novels such as Where Angels Fear to Tread, A Room with a View, a passage to India, and also Howard's End, very much set in Bloomsbury, London. He's said to have fitted right in because of, quote, his respect for nonconformity, his belief in the individual, his love of art, the inner life, and personal relations. Another key member was John Maynard Keynes, well known for all sorts of different things. He'd been a Cambridge lecturer, he worked at the Treasury, He published a much-read book in 1919 called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, predicting, rightly as it turned out, that if Germany was too harshly treated, this would have terrible repercussions in the future. And here's a paragraph from the Insights book on him, giving some idea of the range of things that he was good at. In addition to a mass of books, articles, reviews, academic papers, lectures and essays, he found time also to make and lose several speculative fortunes, marry the ballerina Lydia Lopakova, form a picture and book collection and set up the Arts Theatre in Cambridge. He also spearheaded the creation of the Arts Council of Great Britain. So lots of well-known and clever people. But yes, the main focus today, I think, would be really Virginia Woolf. Her novels are certainly still read and studied today and at the time when they were written they were seen as absolutely groundbreaking. She had ideas about how books could be differently written. She wrote an essay on this called On Modern Fiction in which she tried to explain that she wanted to convey the idea that all sorts of different thoughts and impressions pass through a mind, often quite randomly. This is how she put it. In a single day the mind receives a myriad impressions, trivial Fantastic, evanescent, or engraved with the sharpest steel, and it is a writer's job to convey that. Just to give the briefest of ideas what that means, here's a little extract from the beginning of the novel Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway is supposed to be walking through London on her way to a flower shop to buy some flowers for a party, so here are just a few lines on her thoughts as she is walking along the streets and notices how beautiful the trees look. Quote, June had drawn out every leaf on the trees. The mothers of Pimlico gave suck to their young. Messages were passing from the fleet to the Admiralty. Arlington Street and Piccadilly seemed to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves hotly, brilliantly, on waves of that divine vitality which Clarissa loved. To dance, to ride, she had adored all that. For they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks but suddenly it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? You can imagine that a nation of readers used to, well, this happened, and then that happened, and so-and-so said, would find this all very new, possibly refreshing, possibly confusing, but different it certainly was. Virginia's sister, Vanessa, was an artist. She'd been to art school, she painted portraits of many of the members of the Bloomsbury group, and she was very interested, too, in arts and crafts, and designed all sorts of things herself, many of which were sold through a company called Omega, and just to give a flavour of that, a few lines of description from Amy License's book. There were painted silk scarves, embroidered panels worked by Vanessa, or Duncan's mother, hand-knotted carpets, painted tiles and lampshades, toys, bead necklaces, fans, bags, parasols, lamps, trays and fabrics, such as to cover chairs, beds and sofas. The book was actually entitled Living in Squares, Loving in Triangles, which gets to the heart of the other thing that is most remembered today about the Bloomsbury Group, and that was their very avant-garde attitude to relationships. So, just a couple of examples to give the flavour. Here, for example, are a few lines on Duncan Grant. Quote, Predominantly homosexual, he'd been engaged in an affair with his cousin Lytton, whom he had left for the Apostle John Maynard Keynes before falling in love with James Strachey, who was in turn enamoured of Rupert Brooke. After which, Duncan became enamoured of Cambridge scientist Arthur Hobhouse. It was a complicated emotional tangle, peppered by brief flirtations with women, which often left Duncan uncertain and unhappy. And, from a page or two later, a few more lines. Lytton was living with the artist Dora Carrington, who conducted relationships with members of both sexes, as did Virginia's friends and fellow authors Catherine Mansfield and Rupert Brooke, and as did Virginia herself, with the married Vita Sackville-West. Keynes would go on to marry in later life, as did Adrian Stephen, David Garnett, and many of the other men whose homosexual experiences began in their public school years. And just as one last example of the complications which arose, Here's a paragraph from the National Portrait Gallery's entry on David Garnet in their Insights book. Between 1915 and 1919, Grant and Garnet lived together in the Ménage à Trois with Vanessa Bell. During that time, she had a child by Grant, a daughter, whom she named Angelica. Garnet, watching the baby being weighed in a shoebox on some kitchen scales, conceived the idea of marrying her. More than 20 years later, he did so and it was one of their four daughters, Larissa Garnett, who painted a vibrant portrait of him. So, whatever you personally think of all of that, you won't be surprised to hear that the group have attracted over the years not just much admiration, but also certainly some criticism. Were they just navel-gazers? Were they rather arrogant? Could you say that they were perhaps divorced from real life? And there's no shortage of people who have queued up to make these points. I found a comment on Quote, the ingrowingness of that little Bloomsbury world, their appalling habit of writing endless letters to each other, analysing, betraying, mocking, and envying each other. The poet Rupert Brooke, who was certainly on the fringes of the group, wrote about the rotten atmosphere in Strachey's treacherous and wicked circle, and even Virginia Woolf at one point wrote in one of her memoirs about. Quote, the shabby, ugly, ungracious sitting about for hours in complete silence. But having heard the lasting works that many of them produced, perhaps you think that it's for that that they should be best remembered. I think the whole thing is probably best summarised in that quotation about them living in squares and loving in triangles. And it certainly is true to say that it's partly what people know about the Bloomsbury Group and its members which contributes to the very particular atmosphere of this area of London. What else then can you see here? Well, lots of things. Museums, libraries, bookshops. They are all there in abundance, and none better known than the British Museum itself. Founded as early as 1753, possibly actually the world's best-known museum, and certainly one of London's top tourist attractions. So it all began in the reign of George the Second, when his doctor, one Sir Hans Sloane, the collection of objects to the nation. He had made a lot of money, being the king's doctor, inventing drinking chocolate, and so on, and so by the time he was ready to hand over his collections, they amounted to over 70,000 objects. The nation could have them all, he said, as long as they paid his heirs £20,000 and agreed that the collection would never be broken up. So, the British Museum was created, decided on, in fact, by an Act of Parliament. We've been adding to it ever since and there are now over 8 million items. So what are these things? Well, everything. Everything Roman and Greek and Egyptian artefacts. Stuff from Africa, China, India. Closer to home, whole exhibitions on things like Anglo-Saxon and Roman Britain. Where, as I so often seem to be saying in these podcasts, to start? Well, let's think highlights. Okay, a couple of things. The Elgin marbles, which are in fact not marbles at all. They are sculptures which were taken from the Parthenon in Athens by one Lord Elgin, who decided to then call them after himself in the very early 19th century. There being a war on, he said these had to be taken away for their own protection, but as you probably know, the Greek government have been saying ever since that they would quite like them back. The other top item would probably be the Rosetta Stone, apparently the most visited object in the entire building. Why would that be? Well, because they are the key to Egyptian hieroglyphics. Before it was found, we had no idea what these meant. Afterwards, the problem was solved. They were actually found in 1799 by French soldiers, but since the British went on to defeat the French at that point, they acquired the stone and brought it back to be studied and placed in the British Museum. And the studies revealed that what was actually on them was the same text in three different scripts, ancient Greek and two forms of Egyptian, including Egyptian hieroglyphics. So since they could read the Greek, they were able to work out, piece together how hieroglyphics worked. And from that, of course, it became possible to go on and read all sorts of other hieroglyphics and thus really begin to study ancient Egyptian culture in a way that previously just hadn't been possible. This is obviously a moment for a shout out to linguists because the French professor who mainly worked on this took 20 years to unravel the whole thing. The list of treasures is of course pretty much endless so if you're feeling overwhelmed a few tips. Firstly it's free to get in so you can pop in see a few things go away come back another time. You can take advantage of the museum's highlight tours I think you may have to pay for those, but they'll take you round and point out some of the best-known things. There are also, I believe, free daily tours on particular little areas. I found a list of 15 or 20 of these, things like Japan, ancient Iraq, the gods and goddesses of Rome and Britain. They all seem to be on most days at a particular time. And there are also sessions called Handling Objects sessions, not to mention audio guides, including family guides, and so on and so on. And very much linked to an offshoot of really the British Museum is the British Library, because when the British Museum first opened, the library was part of it. And even in the very early days, the book collections were magnificent. They were much boosted, for example, by the collection of George III. His son George fourth, wrote to the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, on the occasion of his father's death to make this magnificent offer. "Dear Lord Liverpool," he wrote, "the King." My late revered and excellent father, having formed, during a long series of years, a most valuable and extensive library consisting of about a 120,000 volumes, I have resolved to present this collection to the British nation. It was a wonderful gift because in fact George III's library was what's known as a deposit library, meaning that he had to be given a copy of every single book published in the country as it came out. There was, until 1997, a very famous reading room in the British Museum where all sorts of famous people read and studied and wrote works that we're still reading today. We know, for example, that Charles Dickens got a reader's ticket for that room on his 18th birthday. It's where Karl Marx worked, apparently daily from 9 o'clock till 7, through most of 1857, writing Das Kapital. George Bernard Shaw wrote Pygmalion there, In fact, he donated the royalties from the play to the library. Such was his gratitude. And the list of other people who have written and worked there is endless. Virginia Woolf, Mahatma Gandhi, Agatha Christie, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and on and on. So quite sad it was in 1997 when it closed, but the reason was that it had outgrown the space available, really, and a new British library was needed, opened the very next year up by King's Cross and St Pancras in a building which I saw rather tersely described in three words by the rough guide to London, which says it is, red brick brutalism. But it too is a wonderful treasure house with all sorts of goodies, surviving copies of Magna Carta, the manuscripts of Beowulf and the Lindisfarne Gospels, the first folio editions of quite a few of Shakespeare's plays, a handwritten copy of Alice in Wonderland, done by Lewis Carroll himself, And one of the first things you'll see as you go in, a glass-walled tower in the middle, which contains actually all the books from the original library of George III. Anyone can go in, they run exhibitions, which I think you usually have to pay for, and in fact, if you ask nicely and have your photograph taken and prove that you're a worthy sort, you can join as a reader, and then you can use it as a space to consult books and newspapers, and indeed to work. It's popular with journalists and writers. So it's good to know that the general public can also have access to it. I like the atmosphere in there. I think it is somewhere that it's easy to read and think, even if the atmosphere is perhaps not quite as illustrious as you used to get in the reading-room at the British Museum. Mind you, just before we move on, not everybody liked that. There was one Beatrice Webb writing a diary in 1888, and this is what she had to say about the British Museum's reading-room: There you see decrepit men despised foreigners, forlorn widows and soured maids, all knit together by a feeling of fellowship with the great immortals. A slightly ungracious comment, perhaps, because she did enjoy certain things about the reader room. She said, for example, that it was there that, I first recovered my thirst for knowledge and felt the passion for truth overcoming all other feeling. And she went on to describe how it felt to be surrounded by so many wonderful books what she described as quote, the atmosphere of untold knowledge. There are other well known libraries in the area, for example, the London Library in St James's Square, and there are bookshops a-plenty too. Waterstones, of course, one of the largest waterstones you probably ever see, but also specialist bookshops clustered around the British Museum, for example, the London Review Bookshop or the wonderfully named Jarndyce Antiquarian Booksellers. If that doesn't sound Dickensian, I don't know what does. Although actually, if fits good second-hand bookshops you're looking for. I'd recommend Charing Cross Road, where there are a good number, and also at the Tottenham Court Road tube end of Charing Cross Road, you will find London's biggest, most comprehensive general bookshop, Foils. So, with all this academic endeavour going on, it's no surprise to find that this is also the patch of London belonging to the University of London. The first part of which. Was opened in 1828 and known as the University College for Dissenters. At least that was its official title. Other people apparently called it the Godless College. The point being that you had to be a worshipper in the Church of England to study at the Oxford or Cambridge colleges, but here in London, if that wasn't you, they would welcome you anyway. The Church of England soon hit back. The following year, in fact, they opened King's College. But, in fact, the two institutions decided that they would get on better if they worked together, so in the 1830s they amalgamated to become the University of London. In her book on Victorian London, Lisa Picard describes who this university was for, for all classes and denominations, except, of course, women, who were not allowed to sit for degrees until 1878. I can add, in fact, that in that case the University of London was doing much better than Oxford and Cambridge, where even in the 20th century, at least in the early decades, women who were allowed to study there weren't actually granted degrees. I myself was taught in the 1970s by the amazing and formidable Miss Smith, who had studied maths at Cambridge, done the whole course, and been told that if she had been a man, yes, they certainly would have awarded her a degree. Anyway, today the University of London is all over this part of London, There's UCL in Gower Street. There's SOAS, the School of African and Oriental Studies. There's the Senate House. And of all that is on offer, I think the most interesting fact is the one about the founder, Jeremy Bentham. He founded UCL, but made it a condition that his own skeleton should be preserved so that he could attend the annual general meeting every year on into the future. And, believe it or not, this was indeed done. Here is Christopher Wynne, author of London by Tube, explaining His skeleton, padded out with straw, dressed in his own clothes and topped with a wax head, garnished with his real hair has sat here since 1850, gazing out at generations of students and gawpers. It goes on to explain that Jeremy Bentham had in fact originally intended them to use his real head but that, and I quote the mummification process left it looking rather too shrunken and macabre So it was placed at his feet and a wax head substituted. And I can't resist quoting just a few more lines as follows. In 1976, Jeremy Bentham attended the 150th anniversary of the founding of UCL and he is occasionally invited to special events, most recently in April 2006 when he was guest of honour at a dinner during the John Stuart Mill Bicentennial Conference held at the university. John Stuart Mill had been Bentham's student. So to our foreign listeners in particular if you wanted any proof that the English are pretty eccentric I think you have it right there. One last building worth mentioning not one you can visit but still worthy of note and that's the University's Senate House which when it was opened in 1936 was the tallest secular building in the whole of London London's first skyscraper if you like. It was not popular one contemporary called it a bleak, blank, hideous building but it was put to good use during World War II when it became the Ministry of Information and in there worked such worthy notables as George Orwell, Graham Greene and Evelyn Moore. It obviously made an impression on them because it found its way into not one but two novels which they wrote. So George Orwell modelled his Ministry of Truth for the novel 1984 on this building but he had three slogans added onto the façade which were not there in the original. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Graham Greene also took inspiration from it and it became, in one of his novels, The Ministry of Fear. So then, a picture of a particular area of London, the academic, the intellectual, the haunt of writers and publishers and people who like books. It's not one of the big hitters on the tourism list, I wouldn't say. But it's a very nice area to wander around. Perhaps a coffee stop here, a linger in a bookshop there, a picnic in one of the squares, a look at some of the statues. Very English, very elegant, very much worth a visit. That's it then for this week. Next week, a complete change of scene. I'm going to do two or three episodes on some of the slightly less central parts of London that we haven't covered yet. Next week, in fact, we're off to the East End and the docks. And a couple of episodes after that, we're going to Hampstead and Highgate and to Greenwich. All places with lots of history and lots of interesting things to visit. So I hope you'll join me for all of those. But for the moment, thank you very much for your company today. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit to Bloomsbury. Goodbye.